Well, good morning, church. You quieted down so quickly. Um, my name is Ashley. I'm the worship pastor here. If we haven't met, um, I would love to meet you. I feel like I'm still relatively new. I've been at the church about a year and a half. And so um, I would love to meet you if you want to grab me after service or in between or whatever. Um, if you're new, we would love to connect with you. So we have connect cards in the seat back pockets in front of you. If you want to fill one of those out um, and then at the end of the gathering, take that to the new guest tent outside. We have a gift for you and we just want to welcome you and say hello um, and help get you plugged in here at Red Hills. Um, I'm going to call the ushers forward. Um, if you feel led to give this morning, at Red Hills, we believe that giving is a form of worship. We call it giving um, is worshiping through generosity. And so if you would like, the buckets are going to be passed. Um, you can give in that way, or you can also give online if that is more convenient for you. Um, if you're new, we have our next steps class today. So that is uh, a class where you get to know about us as Red Hills, and we get to know about you and just share with you um, who we are, what we do, small groups, dream teams, all of that, help get you connected and plugged in. So if you would like to hop in that class with Pastor Brett, who's our Connections Pastor, following this gathering, he'll meet you out in the lobby and then walk you over to the space for next steps. And then finally, we have the opportunity to partner with our community and to fill a felt need that um, Edwards Elementary School has expressed they're struggling with having enough snacks for their kids. And so um, today, next Sunday, and then the following Sunday, the uh, October 30th, if you would bring just snacks that we can pass to the schools and just love them in that way and provide for that need, we're doing a snack drive and um, let's just rally around the school and bless Bless little kids with um, yummy snacks. So I'm going to invite Pastor Lane to come forward. And I did this first service, so keep it brief because last service that went long. Lean to your neighbor and tell them what your favorite snack is. <laughs> All right, all right, that's enough, class, that's enough, I'll wait, no, I'm kidding, <laughs> I have a teacher that used to say that, I'll wait, um, my favorite snack growing up was definitely the snack pack pudding pack things, yeah, <laughs> you know what's up, those are good, um, well, I'm really glad to be with you guys this morning, my name is Lane, I'm the pastor here. Our team, our staff, just uh, got back from Spokane, Washington yesterday. Uh, we were with the Foursquare Leaders Conference, uh, Northwest Regional Leaders Conference. And it was a really good time to be with people in our movement. Really good time to hang out with the team. Um, <laughs> I'm going to share a story. So we were playing apples to apples late one night because, you know, Christians or whatever. And so we're playing apples to apples. <laughs> and uh, Pastor Irma, who <laughs> has been a pastor in our community, she pulls out one of the cards. And she goes... <laughs> She goes, who's baby Yolanda? And then Kim reaches over and goes, Irma, that says baby Yoda. <laughs> so we've been talking about baby Yolanda for a while. Anyway, <laughs> sorry, Irma, I thought that was really funny. That is neither here nor there. We're here to teach the Bible, okay? So we are finishing this week. We are wrapping up our series in the book of James, Wisdom Lived Out. And I already miss it. 
I already do. I have loved being in the scriptures, specifically in the letter that James wrote to the church, and I've been really benefiting from uh, the wisdom. I hope that you have as well. I would challenge you as we close the chapter on James that uh, you not close the wisdom of James in your life. I would actually recommend that this week, as we reflect on what James has taught us, maybe start at chapter 1, verse 1, and just read the whole thing all the way through. Just read the, it, it doesn't take that long. You could literally do it probably in 10 minutes, less than that. Just read the whole book of James all the way through and reflect on the j- wisdom that Jesus has been sharing with you. But we're bringing it to a close today, and we're going to jump right in because there's a lot to talk about. All right, James, chapter 5, starting in verse 13. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain in the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. Okay. A lot going on in this closing passage in James. First thing he emphasizes is kind of this idea of community. And James has been doing this all throughout the letter, but he is calling the people of God to a special kind of community. One that is not uh, famous for showing favoritism. One that does not behave like the world. One that is not driven by competition. It is to be a community centered around Jesus who gives us the model of self-sacrificial love, right? This is the kind of community that James is calling us to. It's something that transcends anything around us. We'll get more into that in a little bit. But he asks the question, is anyone among you sick? Is anyone among you happy? Is anyone among you in trouble? This suggests that we actually need to know what's going on in each other's lives to know, is anyone among us, right? In our community, we need to know the burden of knowledge is uh, it's, it's a shared one. The burden of knowledge of what's going on in each other's lives, it's a shared one. We need to be people as a community who are actively listening and seeing those around us who don't have our eyes closed. But there is also a responsibility on the individual to make known what is going on in their lives. He says, is anyone in trouble? Let them pray. If anyone is happy, let them sing songs of praise. If anyone is sick, let them come forward to the elders, right? You know, I think sometimes people... Unfortunately, they do get ostracized, they do get excluded, they do get treated poorly. That's unfortunate. And as a community of Jesus followers, we need to make sure that we're not doing that. We need to make sure that we are leaving the 99 to go after the one, that we are looking for every opportunity to extend belonging to anyone that is lonely. We have a responsibility to go out of our way to practice radical acceptance and reconciliation. That is on us. That is on the community. That's on the church. But I also think there are times where it becomes easy to blame other people for my loneliness rather than stepping into community. Building meaningful relationships, it takes time, it takes risk, it takes vulnerability, and it's not easy. But how many times do we give up because it gets difficult or we get discouraged? I think part of that 
is that we are easily offendable. We're kind of growing up in a society that teaches us to be really fragile. And I think that can be to our detriment sometimes, to where if someone doesn't text you back, you start filling in all those gaps with all sorts of assumptions, don't you? You left me on red, therefore you don't like me. Therefore, you're embarrassed to be seen with me. Therefore, you're annoyed by me. Therefore, I have less value. Therefore, I have less worth. And we snowball. And we take these little things where it's like they didn't get back to me. They didn't call me. They, they forgot my birthday. We take these things and we say, this must mean A, B, or C about my worth and my value. But here's the thing. Most of the time, they're probably just as busy as you, are just as preoccupied about their own lives as you're preoccupied about with you about yours, and you fell through the cracks. This is not indicative, this is not a statement on your value and your worth. When finding community gets difficult, that's the time to keep leaning in. People are going to offend you, people are going to cast you aside, reject you, move on. Knock on a different door. It's important to find community. Don't accept your loneliness. Keep pressing in. And on the other side of that equation is the fact that as a community, we tend to be made up of people who in this culture value our individual freedom more than we value the community, right? And this is me. I'm preaching to myself right now. But maybe a lot of the time our culture is so individualistic, so self-driven that the value placed on community is almost always secondary to my own preferences and my own freedom, right? And so we maybe need to make an adjustment in our mindset. And my community, a lot of the time, ends up looking a lot like me, suspiciously. Because maybe I'm so self-centered and so prideful that I want my community to reflect my image back at me. Ooh. But the community of God is supposed to be a diverse expression of God's image. That when we are in community together, it is worship. And that when we worship together, my discovery of God is deepened. Here's what I mean by this. Paul writes that if you want to even glimpse the love of God, that you need to work together with all the saints. Everyone that's come before you, everyone you know around you, and everyone that's coming ahead of you. You need to know together all just to get a glimpse of God's love. That means that when I meet a new human being, that they're reflecting a facet of God that I could not know apart from them. So the most valuable commodity in the community of faith is one another. And that's why James gets so upset when we crawl, quarrel and we fight and we talk bad about each other and we argue over stupid things because he's like, look at what you're doing. You are flying in the face of the most valuable thing you will ever have in your life, one another. Stop it. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not yelling at you. I'm, I'm James. James is yelling at you. <laughs> He's calling us into, into this deepened uh, culture of, of love and sacrifice. That's what he wants for us, right? What if whenever I encountered a human being, I didn't perceive an individual that was there for me to size up? That I didn't perceive as like, do I want to spend time with them or not? What if, what if I, I took it at face value that who they are, because they are someone made in the image of God, I need them to understand fully who God is? James also suggests that the best response for every situation in a person's life is prayer and praise. Whether it's trouble, whether it's happiness, every situation in a person's life is an opportunity for worship. That's what he says. 
And worship is not just something, about going back to community, it's not just something that happens between me and God. It is, but it's also something that happens as a corporate experience, right? What God is doing is reconciling us to him and us to one another, right? So when I worship, and I'm only worshiping this way, and I have my own devotional private life, and I have a really good reading schedule when it comes to my Bible, and I have my own songs that I like that I listen to in my car, but I'm not in community with other people, something's askew. Worship is supposed to be something that we bear together. And we're not used to this in the West. We value our individual freedom and our autonomy, right? But Paul writes in Romans, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. He writes elsewhere, I think in Galatians, I think. Uh, You can check me. Um, But bear one another's burdens. Do this together in community. When the prophets, when they would lament, they would lament on behalf of the community, And the prophets were the people who were the most aligned with God's will. They were calling people back into covenant, but they were repenting too. Because when one of us falls, all of us fall. When one of us is in an alignment, none of us are in alignment. But we don't like to think of our faith that way. They're over there doing their thing. They're over there falling in that way, but I'm good over here. No, no, no. (laughs) You're supposed to be binded together by the blood of Christ. So when they're struggling, you're struggling. God was, Jesus was doing this while he was walking the earth. He was reorienting our idea of family. That was one of the biggest things that he did. Think about it. When he was on the cross, right? He looked down at John and his mother and said, you're family now. You're his mother. You're his son, her son. When, uh, when uh, Jesus' family walked through the back of the room where he was preaching one time, when he was teaching, they said, oh, your, your mother and your brothers are here. And Jesus said, okay, well, who is my mother? Who is my brother? Jesus was preparing his followers to understand that devotion to Jesus is something that binds us together in a way that transcends genealogy. He was showing us that when we are devoted to one another with such love that Jesus gives us, that it elevates Jesus to Lord in all of our lives, it brings us closer than blood relatives. It brings us closer. That's the kind of community that James is talking about. Whatever we experience, good, bad, or ugly, we do it together. And then James writes that if someone is sick, they should have the elders come together and pray for anyone who needs it. Now, elders just doesn't mean advanced in years, although it does mean this. It means those who have had their faith tested. It means those who have endured to the place of maturity. It means those who have scars. It means people who can say, God carried me through this. He's going to carry you. Friends, we need this. My heart is broken at the way our culture is trying to divide us, not just across political lines, not just across racial lines, but across generational lines, where we believe that we are indeed better than the person that has come before us or behind us. It's not something that you would ever say out loud and say that you believe, but you kind of think it. You kind of think this young person has no idea what's going on, therefore I'm better. This older person is so out of touch with it, therefore I am better. We have these judgments. We have prejudice against one another. And it breaks my heart because we need people. We need mothers and fathers of the faith who are willing to come alongside young people in their struggles and say, look, God carried me through this. I've seen how he can work. I've seen what he can do. He can take you through this too. We need each other to point each other to trust 
We need those individuals in our communities who have faith in spades, who have endured and matured, who can hold us in our darkest hours and point to trust in Jesus, right? Teacher Kim is someone who is like this. You know Teacher Kim. She's a prayer warrior, and she's just, she's mom to everyone, right? That's who she is. I remember I had a meeting with her, because I have, like, you know, bi-quarterly meetings with all the staff, and uh, I, we walked into my office, like, Kim, I just got to go to the bathroom, I'll be right back. So I went to the bathroom, and when I came back, I opened the door, and Kim is, like, praying so loud, she's like, Jesus, in the name of Jesus, his family and his wife, they will be loved, and they will be accepted, and she's, like, going for it in my office, and I was like, are you ready to meet now? Like, are you? Um, but that's who Kim is, right? She is someone who's going to hold you up in prayer no matter what. I remember, I remember when my wife and I, when we kept losing babies, and we didn't know why, and we wanted help, and we were desperate. I got to tell you, it didn't matter who you voted for. didn't matter what denomination you were in didn't matter how you dressed, didn't matter what music you listened to, didn't matter whether or not you approved of my lifestyle, when we were in that desperate hour of need, if you claimed Jesus as Lord, we were asking you to pray. Because it's so much more important. It's so much more important that we lay down our lives for one another in those moments than about all the other stuff in the periphery. And it is in the periphery. Even if you don't want to believe it is, they are. If they claim Jesus as Lord, they're blood to you now. You're binded together in his spirit. And if we pretend like we don't need each other, we are going to fall. We need one another. Just because we have differing opinions and preferences around a lot of things, it doesn't matter. There is very little in this world that could stand up to a church united in prayer. Across all lines, if we claim lordship of Jesus, are we a praying church or are we a critiquing church? Are we a praying church or are we a complaining church? Are we a praying church or are we a posting church? James didn't write, listen, is anyone among you in trouble? Gossip and debate about whether or not they deserve it. Is anyone among you happy? Squash that joy out of jealousy and envy. Is anyone sick? Don't think too much about it during your work week because it will drag you down and make you too sad. James is prescribing something to the church here, and it's a challenge. It's a challenge to me. There are times where the Bible is descriptive. It's just telling you about something that happened, and there are times where it is speaking to you from when it was written to right now, and it's saying, do this, because it is what Jesus wants you to do. This is one of those moments. We don't have an out. James is telling us that Jesus would have us in every occasion, for every season, go to prayer. He's prescribing prayer. And prayer happens in community. We pray, and then we pray, and then we pray some more. That's what he's challenging us to do. And then he talks about this prayer of a righteous person. There's something we need to clear up pretty quickly, because this can kind of get religious and pious, where we think, oh, okay, well, if I'm someone who's really good at following the rules, and someone that's really moral, I'm able to better twist God's arm to coerce him to doing what I want him to do. That's not what's going on. The kind of righteousness that Jesus was after, if we remember, the kind of righteousness he was after was not the righteousness of good rule following. Now, Jesus did say, I have not come to abolish the law, I have come to fulfill it. But he also looked at the Pharisees, people who were really good at following the law, 
who never broke a rule, who were really morally upright, and he said, um, you are our whitewashed grave. You are full of death and deceit. You look good on the outside, but there's nothing going on the inside. They were people who were devoted to the religion of following God, but they couldn't even recognize him when he walked into the room in the form of Jesus. The kind of righteousness that Jesus seeks is not the kind that's just good at being moral. He's looking for righteousness that abides. Someone who is in relationship with him. That's the kind of righteousness the Father seeks. In John 15, when Jesus is talking about obedience, if you follow me, if you obey my commands, then you will abide in my love, he starts with saying, abide in me. Obedience flows out of a relationship and a connection and an intimacy with Jesus. So in this way, righteousness in the biblical sense is not about performance, it's about proximity. The prayer of someone who is walking with Jesus is effective because they know the will of God. They're familiar with his ways. They know the shepherd's voice. By the way, proximity to the Savior will improve your behavior. That's good. It will make you more of a moral person. But if you try to get to Jesus the other way around, it's an uphill battle and you lose it every time. You cannot be moral enough and good enough and follow enough rules to get to Jesus. Just go to Jesus. He'll work the rest of it out. They talk about Elijah, right? So Elijah's this prophet. Prophets in the Old Testament, they spoke on behalf of God. They called people into alignment with the covenant, and they called them out when they were out of alignment with the covenant, right? That's what Elijah was. This is someone whose entire vocation was to call people to the will of God and call them out of rebellion. So is James suggesting that the people who follow the rules the best are better able to twist the arm of God, or that those who are actively pursuing the will of God are more likely to speak into existence the things that God is already doing? Someone who is in step with the Spirit of God, someone who knows the shepherd's voice, someone who draws near to Jesus in their prayer life, someone who is actively seeking the will of the Father, is going to have prayers that are in alignment with what God is up to. Praying in faith is not just about wanting it badly enough, like a birthday wish and you're blowing out a candle. It's like, if I just want it enough, maybe it'll happen. That's not what praying in faith is about. Praying in faith is about knowing the Father and extending trust to him with your request. A wise person once said, I don't pray because I love prayer. I pray because I love Jesus. Is your ultimate goal in seeking the supernatural? Is it rooted in a sensationalism that just wants like a thrill and some adrenaline, just wants a high? Or is your seeking of the supernatural rooted in being in step with the Father? Because Jesus even said in John chapter 5, I can only do what I see the Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. Listen, the heart of why we pray is far more important than what we are praying for. Prayer is not about an exchange of goods and services, and this is a sting to me as well, so if it stings you, it, it stings, it's Jesus stinging us. It's okay. But if you were to break down your last 50 prayers to Jesus, okay, just the last 50 prayers, how many of those were centered around you needing something from him? How many of those last 50 prayers actually started with gratitude and then just stayed in gratitude? <laughs> Because even if God gave me nothing else for the rest of my life, the resurrection and the breath in my lungs is enough, do I have that posture? 
how many of those last 50 prayers were, had extended times of silence because I was more interested in what God had to say than what I had to say. Getting good at prayer, this is not the goal. Prayer is the centerpiece of my dialogue with my first love. That's what prayer is. It's like when you go on a date night, right? Like, you're not going just for the movie, hopefully. You're going so that you can be with the person you love. That's what prayer is. Prayer is not the point. Union is the point, right? So is your prayer life an exchange, or is it an encounter? Now, that doesn't mean that we don't ask Jesus for stuff, because we're supposed to ask Jesus for stuff. Jesus tells us to ask Jesus for stuff, right? When he commands us to pray, the Lord's Prayer, there's lots of requests in there. Namely, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But Jesus, he says something really interesting. So in Luke chapter 11, this is a version of the teachings that are in the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me these three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. What a silly illustration. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. For one who seeks, finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, though you are evil, thanks Jesus, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So interesting. What Jesus is not saying is that God is like this selfish neighbor who can't be interrupted and bothered with our requests. That's not what he's saying. Just keep knocking. It'll bother him enough. He'll give you what you want. That's not what he's saying. He's actually drawing a contrast. He's saying God is so obviously not like this person. He's a loving father who wants to give you good things. So will he not much more take care of you than the person in this story? That's what he's saying. Will he not much more respond to you when you need him? But notice at the end of this passage, he offers an illustration of a parent, right? Of a father who their son asked them for an egg and they don't give him a scorpion. The son asks him for a fish. They don't give him a snake, right? But notice they also don't give them necessarily the egg or the fish. When they ask for the fish, they may not give him a snake, but they don't necessarily give them the fish either. And Jesus says, even though you're evil and a total mess, and you have the wherewithal to give good gifts to your children, will not our Heavenly Father give us the Holy Spirit? Interesting. The Holy Spirit, the presence and the power of God in my life. When I pray, it's not an exchange, it's an encounter. Knock and the door will be opened. This is an illustration of reconciliation, of coming home. Everyone who asks receives. We may not get what we're asking for, but we receive. Jesus is telling us, God is enough. In any request that you have, in anything that you ask for, in any petition that you bring to the Father, you will receive. Even if you don't get what you're asking for, 
You have him, and he's enough. Reconciliation. We have to remember, when we zoom out to 30,000 feet, the whole story of the Bible, everything in the scriptures points to a story of reconciliation, the creator and the created being found in communion with one another. Yes, the mission and the purpose is important, but it flows out of a place of loving union, right? That's why the conversation around healing is directly related to the conversation around forgiveness, if you notice, in this passage. Whenever Jesus healed, the miracle was always about more than just the physical healing. There was always something deeper, always something bigger going on. All of Jesus' miracles pointed to who Jesus was. In fact, the Gospel of John is structured this way. They're called signs. And every sign that Jesus performs points to his authority as the Messiah. Now, the miraculous, in terms of physical healing and supernatural events, this wasn't that weird or out of place for someone living in the first century. They had a very different mindset than we do in our post-enlightenment Western context. Supernatural things were not weird. The the ancient Near Eastern mind was far more open to the supernatural than we are. The acts of the supernatural that Jesus enacted were actually not the center of the controversy when it came to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. The, The miracles were not what made people angry the most. You know what was the most controversial thing? The fact that he was forgiving people's sins. That was not okay in their minds. Who was he? He did not have the authority to do that. Here's an illustration. If we need um, to get a passport or a driver's license, right, there is a process that we need to go through, and we need to go through the proper channels. We need to go through the proper people and the right organizations and the government, and there's a process to get those things. But if somebody walked up to me on the street and was just like, hey, you know what? I'm going to give you this passport. You're good to go. You would look at them and be like, that's not how that works. (laughs) I need to go through a process. I need to apply. I need to pay the fee. I need to do all the things to get my passport. And in the same way, the forgiveness of sins, saying that somebody was clean in the community, there was a process. There was a priesthood. There was sacrifices. There was a lot of things that needed to happen before someone could say, you are forgiven. And Jesus was walking around going, "Uh, you're forgiven, and you're whole, and you're clean, and And the Pharisees were like, that is not how it works. (laughs) There is a process, right? That's evidence for Jesus' divinity right there. That he was enacting the authority of forgiveness and atonement apart from the priesthood. Jesus, when he's performing a miracle for the paralyzed man in Mark chapter 2, he says, which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Amazed at the miracle? Yeah, probably. Amazed at Jesus' authority to forgive? Most definitely. This is why James says, Confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. When we practice confession and forgiveness to one another, we participate in the grace of Jesus that he's given to us. And it is our forgiveness, it is our atoning, it is our, it is our redemption that is the center of our healing. Yes, physical healing is a thing, and yes, it's amazing when it happens, but the whole point of healing is that we are being reconciled to the Father, that we are being brought into loving union with Him. That is the story of the Bible. When it came to physical healing in the scriptures, the physical healing was an outward sign of a spiritual reality that Jesus was bringing to light. Acceptance, forgiveness, community. 
and made the Pharisees really uncomfortable, right? And then, but here's the thing. James makes a really startling promise in this passage. He says, bring them to have the elders pray over them, and the prayer extended in faith will heal them. They will be healed. Let's talk about healing. Let's just go there, okay? Because this is a really interesting and controversial topic, anyone that you ask with, right? You already feel it's getting awkward in the room. Do you feel that? <laughs> I want you to know a little bit about your pastor. So I grew up in the Assemblies of God, which is a Pentecostal uh, denomination, and there was a church split. That was lovely. And we ended up going with a charismatic wing, a non-denominational charismatic wing of this church split. And if you've never been to a charismatic, if you guys aren't familiar with these terms, Pentecostal is what Foursquare is. That's what our church is. It basically just means that we really love the Holy Spirit and believe that he has power to move and speak right now, today. Uh, and charismatic is another wing of Pentecostalism that is uh, a little more focused on the experience and the sensationalism in uh, the Holy Spirit. And I'm very grateful for, for this background and this upbringing. I'm grateful for my experience and the tradition that I was brought up in. Um, if you were to look at me today, I'd probably, if you looked at my beliefs, I'd be like an anglo pentatemplative presbyterian person. That'd probably be somewhere where I'm at. But I find myself in the, in the theological location of Pentecostalism today in the tradition that I grew up in. And I'm being discipled and pastored by my movement, and I'm, and I'm very grateful for it. And, it. and it stretches me, and it grows me. Because I want you to know that I have scars when it comes to this conversation. I've got some wounds that when you poke at it, it, uh, it gets me a little bit. I, I wrote a little litmus test, a little quiz to know if you're in a charismatic church. Um, if someone in your congregation brought a shofar, to the worship service, which is a ram's horn thing, uh, you might be charismatic. Um, if you had a banner and flags worship team that would do this, um, you might be charismatic. If you ever did a Jericho march around your sanctuary altogether, you might be charismatic. If your pastor had a message that he'd prepared, but then God put something else on his heart that morning every week, you might be charismatic. Um, <laughs> I, I'm poking fun, but I, I, I really am grateful for my charismatic upbringing, and I, and I really do believe that God showed me and revealed to, himself to me in really unique ways while I was in these churches. However, like all human beings, a lot of these leaders were flawed, just like me. But I had a lot of mentors that failed me. Uh, I watched every single senior pastor I ever had walk away from their family, have an affair, or walk away from the faith. The person who first put a guitar in my hand and said, lead worship, he left his family with three kids and went to go live with his girlfriend. I had this happen over and over again. And I had those same people in this movement tell me that if I didn't see someone get healed or I didn't get healed myself, it was because my faith wasn't strong enough. And I watched those same pastors and leaders have a faith that was so weak that they couldn't stay committed to their Don't talk to me about my faith. I'm still here. I'm still with Jesus. And I'm not going anywhere. Unfortunately, this conversation around healing can bring up a lot for me. Because I want to believe that Jesus can heal. In fact, if you ask my brain, I would say, yes, Jesus has the power to heal. If I were to ask my heart if I believe he will do it for me, it's, it's not as easy to say yes. 
And I think a lot of us find ourselves somewhere in this spectrum, right? Some of you, you got the email like, oh, they're going to pray for healing? Like, finally, we should have been doing this every week for like years, finally. And others of you might be thinking, well, like, what does that mean exactly? Does God do that? There's a spectrum of experience, right? There's a whole breadth of feelings that we can bring to this prayer. Faith is not about a superpower of belief. It's not about a birthday wish that you just want enough. True faith, if you look at what James James has been teaching this whole time, true faith is about endurance. And it's about maturity. And it's about trust. Remember, faith is not the absence of doubt. It is the audacity of trust. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, King Nebuchadnezzar. We remember the flannel graph, right? Some of you watch VeggieTales, see the chocolate bunny. Um, Good music, man. Uh, So King Nebuchadnezzar, he makes this big idol, says everyone needs to bow. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they say, no, we know the story. So Nebuchadnezzar says, okay, I'm going to throw you in this furnace. And they stand before him in this moment, and it's really powerful. They say, you know what? Our God is going to deliver us from you, but even if he does not, we will not bow to your idol. That's the kind of faith I'm hungry for. It's the kind of faith that believes that God can move and and give us breakthrough and healing in miraculous and crazy ways that break our categories and go beyond what we can explain. But then also believe that even when he doesn't, that he hasn't failed me. Because like James says, he's a perfect father from whom only good things come. He's light that does not change like shifting shadows. And so even if I don't receive what I ask for in the way that I ask for it, when I ask for it, I have received something good. I have his presence with me. I have his trust. God will deliver me, but even if he does not. There was a, in this church that I was at, um, we put out an ad in the paper for a healing service. And um, someone came that didn't know Jesus, and they happened to be blind. And they came to the front wanting healing. And me and my buddy were like 14, 15. Um, we had been told, if you have enough faith and you pray, healing's going to happen. So step into it and do it. And so we did. We prayed. And we prayed. And we prayed. And the healing never came. And nobody prepared me for that. Nobody told me what to do, how to posture myself, what to believe when God didn't give us what we asked for. And I had this belief that it was simply because my faith wasn't strong enough. It was simply because I wasn't doing the right things. It was simply because I wasn't moral enough. That man wasn't healed. And I think... That's probably not what Jesus wants us to be feeling and doing. (laughs) I think that Jesus wants us to step up in faith and to believe that he can and will heal. And even if he does not, he has not failed, and we will not bow. I think there's a few ways we can step into this conversation around healing, and I'm going to ask the worship team to come up during this time. We're going to spend some time praying, and we're going to go a little bit over, just so you know. Um... (laughs) We're going to spend some time praying in just a moment. And I know some of you already, you're getting really excited. And some of you already are feeling really anxious. 
It's okay. It's okay. I think there's three kinds of gospels, if we're going to use a simple framework. Three kinds of gospels that we can live into in this moment. We can live into the prosperity gospel, which says, anything I ask for in Jesus' name, I will receive. That hasn't been my experience. There's perhaps a cessationist gospel, which says, "Ah, God only did miraculous things back then. They're not for us right now. I don't think that's true either. And there's a more mysterious gospel that says sometimes when we pray, God delivers. And sometimes when we pray, God delivers, but later. There's a man, he was a, a preacher and a speaker. I mispronounce his name all the time, but it's Nick V. It starts with a V. And he's a man that was born without any limbs. You've probably seen him. Great preacher, uh, great public speaker. And he said this. He said, sometimes God gives limbless people limbs. Sometimes God heals the sick. But if God healed every Christian every time when they wanted it, we'd never die. We have to remember that this faith, although we get glimpses and blessings of healings and miraculous things here and there, ultimately, these bodies are not forever. And what we are promised is a deliverance from everything that has ever ailed us into something new. That's what Christ is going to deliver to us. We're going to pray because I think there are people here that really want healing and need healing. Maybe it's physical healing. Maybe it's financial healing. Maybe it's relational healing. Some of you maybe have been so anxious and depressed that your mental health has been so on top of you that even getting here this morning was a miracle. Some of you maybe have been diagnosed with a chronic illness. You haven't told anybody yet because you're not sure how to face it. Or maybe you've been facing a chronic illness for a long time and you've been praying and praying and your faith feels like it's wavering and you're wondering whether or not he's going to do it. Maybe you're so in debt and you have no idea how you're going to climb your way out. Maybe you've become so estranged from someone in your life that you love but it feels impossible to rend that relationship. All of us need healing. All of us need something. And you know what? Your pastor wrestles with doubt. He wrestles with, he knows in his head that God can heal, but he questions in his heart whether or not he will. But you know what? I don't get an out. James says, in every circumstance, you pray. And then you pray. And then you pray some more. So what we're going to do this morning is we are going to pray. We are going to bear one another's burdens. We're going to rejoice with those who are rejoicing, mourn with those who mourn. We're going to lay hands on the sick. We're going to anoint them with oil. And we're going to believe that God is able. And everything that he gives is good. And every time we ask, we do receive. Whether or not it's what we're asking for, not the point. We receive. And we're going to use oil. If you've never encountered this before, it might seem kind of weird. It's nothing magical. It's nothing, it's not witchcraft or something. Um, Oil is a a tradition in the scriptures. It's It's a symbol. Oil is characterized by the pouring out of God's mercy. It's his anointing. It's his choosing. And when we anoint one another with oil, it's a symbol that God has chosen you 
He's appointed you. He's called you. He has mercy on you and that he's healing you. That's what oil is. So it's a symbol. And if you haven't had it applied to you before, it's actually really powerful. When, and we're gonna, I'm going to ask the, the prayer team and those who we invited to pray this morning, I'm going to invite you to come up. But when someone who loves Jesus puts oil on your head and prays for you, it's actually a really powerful thing. I can't totally explain it. But it feels like something very loving and very caring. We're going to extend faith this morning. And we're going to believe that God can heal. Amen. And we're going to take communion. Because this is the promise of healing. When Jesus went to the cross, and when he rose again, he inaugurated a new reality. He invited us into a new promise that one day, anything that ails us, whether it be sin or addiction or debt, sickness, and even death itself, it will not remain. What God gives to us is complete, full, 100% healing, redemption, and newness. He promised it. He delivered it already. And like it says in Romans 8, we wrestle in this time as we groan for that promise. We wait for that, for that fulfillment. And while we do, we say, God, give us faith that we can trust in you. So I'm going to pray. And we're going to sing. And I want you to search your heart. What does God want you to keep asking for? Because sometimes we stop asking, and he has work for us in the asking. He has something he wants to show us and teach us in the asking, and it's time he gets to spend with you. What have you stopped asking for? What have you stopped believing for? James also says to confess your sins to one another and receive healing. Some of you have been carrying a burden of something shameful in your heart for a long time, and you finally need to let it out. Because that shame and that darkness, it will consume you, it will distract you, it will render you ineffective. But guess what? This community that goes beyond genetics, this community that's bonded by the blood of Jesus, it's a community of grace. It's a community of forgiveness. And James says that when we confess our sins to each other, we are healed. So don't hide in the dark. If you want to turn to someone that you came with this morning and you want to say, hey, there's something going on in my life that I need to get off my chest, I need to talk about it, talk to them. If you didn't come with anybody or you don't have anyone around you that you feel comfortable doing that with, come to the front. These people won't gossip about you, I promise. Receive healing. Receive your healing. He's already given it to you. Receive it. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, the night that he went to the cross, the night that he fulfilled his, his promise, he took bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the, the cup. And he said, this cup is my blood and the new covenant shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus, we believe you. We trust you. We pray that you would help our unbelief. We pray that you would bolster our faith. And we come to you this morning and we ask that you would move. Holy Spirit, come. We speak your blood and authority over every situation. 
We speak your healing power over every single place of bondage and sickness in this room, and we declare we are healed. God, we ask that you would touch us, that you would restore us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.